The call to worship this morning comes from 2 Corinthians, and I'm going to use the message paraphrase just for a change. Your very lives are a letter that anyone can read just by looking at you. Christ himself wrote it, not with ink, but with God's living spirit, not chiseled into stone, but carved into human lives, and we publish it. We couldn't be more sure of ourselves in this, that you, written by Christ himself for God, are our letter of recommendation. We wouldn't be writing this kind of letter about ourselves. Only God can write such a letter. God's letter authorises us to help carry out this new plan of action. The plan wasn't written with ink on paper, with pages and pages of legal footnotes killing your spirit. It's written with spirit, on spirit. God's life on our lives. And now let's come to God with our prayers of thanksgiving. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for this new morning. In some ways, like every morning that has gone before it, and yet totally unique. Dawn broke. The sun began its steady climb skywards, just as it has always done. As the darkness was dispersed and light spread, birds sang their familiar songs. Life stirred in hedgerow and field, stable and cage, and day began again. Thank you, God, for this new Sunday. In some ways, like every Sunday that has ever been, and yet completely fresh. Across the whole world, people have been gathering for worship in huge cathedrals and tiny mission halls, singing old hymns and new songs praying for wisdom, strength, peace, justice and joy. Thank you, God, for this service. In some ways, like every service we've ever shared, and yet, brand new. As we settle ourselves into your presence, to listen for your voice in scripture and sermon, Sunday school and story, to find refreshment, encouragement, and maybe challenge, to sing our praises, and to pray for your kingdom. We join in the words Jesus gave his friends, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as 
we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Shout for all your worth. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Proclaim their faults to my people, their sins to the house of Jacob. They seek me day after day. They long to know my ways. Like a nation that wants to act with integrity and not ignore the law of God. They ask me for laws that are just. They long for God to draw near. Why should we fast if you never see it? Why do penance if you never notice? Look, you do business on your fast days. You oppress all your workmen. Look, you quarrel and squabble when you fast and strike the poor man with your fist. Fasting like yours today will never make your voice heard on high. Is that the sort of fast that pleases me? A truly penitential day for men? Hanging your head like a reed? Lying down on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call fasting? A day acceptable to Yahweh? Is not this the sort of fast that pleases me? It is the Lord Yahweh who speaks. To break unjust fetters and undo the thongs of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. To share your bread with the hungry and shelter the homeless poor. To clothe the man you see to be naked and not turn from your own kin. Then will your light shine like the dawn and your wound be quickly healed over. Your integrity will go before you and the glory of Yahweh behind you. Cry, and Yahweh will answer. Call, and he will say, I am here. If you do away with the yoke, the clenched fist, the wicked word, if you give bread to the hungry and relief to the oppressed, your light will rise in the darkness, and your shadows become like noon. Yahweh will always guide you, giving you relief in desert places. He will give strength to your bones, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters never run dry. You will rebuild the ancient ruins, build up on old foundations. You will be called breach mender, restorer of ruined houses. If you refrain from trampling the Sabbath and doing business on the holy day, if you call the Sabbath delightful and the day sacred to Yahweh honourable, if you honour it by abstaining from travel, from doing business and from gossip, then shall you find your happiness in Yahweh, and I will lead you triumphant over the heights of the land. I will feed you on the heritage of Jacob your father, For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. And then 
in the gospel as told by Luke at chapter 2. Jesus went out again to the shore of the lake. And all of the people came to him and he taught them. As he was walking on, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting by the customs house. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. When Jesus was at dinner in his house, a number of tax collectors and sinners were also sitting at the table with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them among his followers. When the scribes of the Pharisee party saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. I did not call to come to call the virtuous, but sinners. One day, when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came and said to him, Why is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Jesus replied, Surely the bridegroom's attendants would never think of fasting while the bridegroom is still with them. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they could not think of fasting. But the time will come for the bridegroom to be taken away from them, and then on that day they will fast. No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old cloak. If he does, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and the tear gets worse. And nobody puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins too. No, new wine, fresh skins. I don't know about you, but I have over the years certainly heard lots and lots of sermons on the Isaiah idea of the fast that's acceptable to God. The fast that it's expressed not in a ritualised abstention from food, but rather in what might be deemed to be social action. Clothing the naked, housing the homeless, feeding the hungry, freeing the captive and overcoming injustice. And yet, for all of that, it's equally true to say that there are lots of Christians who still find value in some form of fasting, as an act of discipline, or as part of a commitment to a process of discernment. Some churches have long periods, or I feel like long periods anyway, of fasting and prayer when they call a minister or decide to make a big decision. So there is clearly something in both of those concepts that continues to attract people down the centuries. It's not that people have abandoned the Old Testament model of fasting completely nowadays and completely gone over to the Isaiah sense of the acceptable fast as a way of life. And I know there are people here today who during Lent or in Advent will choose to abstain from some things. Some of us chose to abstain from Amazon 
in Advent. Some people choose to give up chocolate or tea or go into the cinema or whatever it might be during Lent, and then they give that money to a worthy cause. And for some people, that's really helpful. But for others, it's kind of one of those things that's doomed to failure. You try it and it just doesn't work. You give in and you buy something off Amazon or you just can't resist that chocolate cake or whatever it is. There'll be some people as well who just think it's just nonsense. It's just an archaic practice and never really thought about trying it out. So I want to begin by saying that the purpose today is neither to advocate nor discourage the practice of fasting or abstention. If it's something that individuals find helpful and useful, that's great. And if it's something that individuals find unhelpful or unuseful, that's fine too. Don't do it. Rather, what I want to do is to try to hold in mind the message from Isaiah as we begin to look at part of the second chapter of Mark, which ends with this strange exchange about the fact that Jesus' disciples are not fasting at a time when other people are. This short story that forms Mark 2, verses 18 to 22, is recognised by scholars as puzzling at best. For some unknown reason, unspecified reason, both the Pharisees and the followers of John the Baptizer are fasting, but the disciples of Jesus aren't. And people, who that might be is neither specified nor implied, are trying to understand why this is. Why are they fasting and they aren't? And the reply in which Jesus compares himself with the eschatological bridegroom feasting with his friends isn't entirely satisfactory. Even when coupled with a hint that in due course there will be a fast of mourning when he's taken away from them. And those metaphors about the wine and the wineskin, the coats and the patches, are incredibly slippery. They seem to make sense. You just about work out what you think it means. And then, as countless preachers and teachers and scholars have discovered down the years, it all kind of slips away from you. You can't quite make it work. So instead of trying to tie ourselves in knots, we're going to actually try to think, how do we read this story if we keep in mind the Isaiah concept of acceptable fasting? I think it might be a little bit helpful. After the introduction to the gospel, which we've explored already in quite a lot of depth, comes a very short series of stories in which Jesus becomes established as a popular healer to such an extent that he's constantly mobbed by ordinary Galilean folk. And as we move into chapter 2, something in the story begins to change. New characters enter the story, and we get the first hints of opposition to this emergent movement. And actually, what happens is really shocking. The good people of their day, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, they find themselves on the wrong side of things. And everything they thought they knew and understood is now being questioned. They become the baddies. Well, you know that. 
You've known that for donkey's years, so, so what? Well, just suppose you were a good, God-fearing Jew, attracted by Jesus' teaching and example. How would you square that with the fact that the ministers and the bishops, if they'd had such things, and the deacons and the, the evangelists and all the good people were going, not sure about this. Or supposing you were one of those ministers or deacons or scribes or Pharisees or religious people, and you had worked hard to come to your understanding and suddenly found somebody was just seeming to ignore everything you'd come to, to believe, to think was sacred, and yet somehow they were reaching people that you couldn't. How might that feel? I found myself wondering, is something of this tension present in the community for which, which Mark wrote? Were there some of the religiously orthodox people and some of the people from the margins trying to work out how to live together as followers of Jesus. If we're really honest, really honest, whereabouts in that story will we put ourselves? Are we the local people fascinated by this new teacher and anxious to hear more things? Are we with the newly called disciples? Or are we with the troubled, faithful, religious establishment? Do we find ourselves among the goodies where we would like to be? Or among the baddies? Where presumably we don't want to be. The first sign of disquiet comes in the story of the four friends who brought their lame friend to Jesus. The tenacity and ingenuity of the men who carried their disabled friend to the house clambered onto the roof, broke through and lowered him down right into the heart of the meeting, indicate incredible faith in Jesus. And yet the first words Jesus speaks are troublesome. Your sins are forgiven. They're troublesome to us nowadays because they can be heard as inferring a causal link between sin and sickness. Though, of course, if we think more widely to what we know of Jesus from elsewhere in the Gospels, we know that that is not what he's saying. But for the scribes who are present, they're equally troubling, not because... It makes that connection, but because it seems blasphemous. Only God can forgive sins. How dare this man say that? But what they do is to mumble and grumble to each other. They don't actually say anything to Jesus. I don't know what you're like, but if I'm honest... I can be a bit like that if I'm not sure about what somebody's doing. I probably won't challenge it directly, but I can do a good job of mumbling and muttering. 
You see, good people can and sometimes do find themselves reacting badly to actions which, even though they're unusual or unexpected, are actually good. And whether or not we like it, I have a suspicion that sometimes, sometimes all of us find ourselves cast in the role of the scribes, mumbling and muttering, this isn't quite right. It's not the way we do things around here. But Jesus gives a really strange reply. He says, well, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say stand up and walk? wonder what answer you might have given to that question. One of the commentators I looked at this week said, actually, well, actually it is easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say stand up and walk. Because if I say to you, your sins are forgiven, nobody can ever disprove that or prove it because only God ultimately does the forgiving of sins. So that's an easy thing to say. But to say, get up and walk, well, that's quite risky, isn't it? I mean, what if the man with the wibbly-wobbly legs stood up and fell over? What if it didn't happen? Credibility would be lost. Now, we're not going to explore the whys and wherefores and what have you about that story, how it happened. But when the man stood up, the scoffers are left speechless. The good news for the lame man becomes a source of irritation for the good people who begin to respond negatively. Isn't it so much easier to say, I'll pray for you, or I'll pray about that, than to say, I'll do such and such, which you could actually check up on. I'll get involved. No one can prove that we prayed, but they can see whether we do or do not do what we say. God says, the kind of fasting I want is this to loose the chains of injustice and to let the oppressed go free. Jesus was once again walking beside the sea. He seemed to like his seaside strolls, did Jesus? And he came across a man called Levi who operated a tax booth. His name quite clearly identifies him as Jewish, but beyond that, his identity is something of a mystery and you would not believe how much energy the scholars expend trying to get to the bottom of this. Is he, say some, synonymous with the tax collector Matthew, to whom the first gospel is attributed? Because that kind of smooths that over nicely, doesn't it? We've got a Levi in one gospel and a Matthew in it. So let's say it's the same person with two names. Or, as he's identified as Levi, son of Alphaeus, is he actually really James, son of Alphaeus, one of the twelve or the brother of James, son of Alphaeus? Or is he actually just a person called Levi, whose story is told for a different purpose? Might it have something to say to us about who Jesus calls, who Jesus is interested in, without saying, and every call of Jesus is a call to become one of the twelve, a call to become an apostle? 
I kind of sense that it probably does. I don't really worry who Levi was. What I do know is that Levi was a tax collector, right on the edge of the polite Jewish society. That the work he did was necessary but not popular, and it was hugely possible for him to become corrupted. Perhaps the purpose of this story is who the man is. And he functions as a kind of type or metaphor for all the little people, the ordinary people, some of whom won't be terribly well-educated, and they certainly won't be particularly religious, who just live out their lives the best they can in and around Galilee. You see, Levi has a name that is synonymous with the priestly tribe, and yet, ironically, is a man right on the edge of Jewish society. I like spotting that because none of the scholars mentioned it. Well, not the ones I read anyway. But this person, whose name is utterly orthodox, is serving the secular authorities, and he mixes with all the wrong kind of people. Jesus' call is not based on societal or even religious norms. He calls whoever he wishes to call, and some of them are decidedly dodgy. And the story carries on with a dinner, which might have been at Levi's house and might have been at Jesus' house, and you can have lots of debates about that one. It was probably Levi's house. And Jesus and the disciples are there, and guess what? There are more tax collectors, and there are (gasps) sinners. But we need to pause for a moment and look at this word sinner, because in that context, it doesn't mean people who were morally bad. It just meant ordinary, non-religious people. People whose working lives perhaps made it difficult for them to keep up with all the purity laws demanded by the religious leaders. So people like shepherds who would be out on the hills. People like undertakers who would have to touch corpses. People who maybe just didn't understand all the rules. People who were perhaps too poor to buy the right meat. And I think it's a wonderful scene There's Jesus and his existing disciples, some of whom we've already met, having a great time eating and chatting with Levi and his tax collector friends and other slightly dodgy people. Is this not the fast I've chosen? To share your food with the hungry, to open your homes to the homeless. Well, you knew it was all going too well, didn't you? Because then in come the scribes of the Pharisees, the religiously orthodox people, and you can kind of feel the temperature drop in the room. They look around and, oh, there's some of the disciples. So, come here, disciples. Um, What's going on? Why is Jesus eating with, you know, tax collectors and um, non-religious people that, well, basically they're sinners? I wonder how the disciples felt in that moment. What answer might they offer? Because this was all still new for them. How might they have felt having been in the moment and enjoying themselves and now the critical gaze of Jerusalem was being directed at them? I think the tension is very real and we delude ourselves if we too quickly criticise their religious leaders. 
it struck me as I read this story that at least in theory, in our day, the religious authorities do want us to engage with people on the margins, with people whose lives might be chaotic or challenging to our ideas of appropriate behaviour. But even so, it's quite disconcerting to have our motives questioned by any kind of authority. And actually, the question isn't an unreasonable one. For what purpose are we choosing to work or eat with this set of people and not another set of people? How do we react when we are challenged by those we perceive to be the religious authorities or the guardians of tradition in our own day? Because even though the churches want us to engage with people on the margins, they kind of have ideas of what that looks like. And what Jesus says is thoroughly shocking. He says, I'm not interested in righteous people. I'm not bothered about them. My purpose is to call sinners. Ordinary people who, actually they maybe didn't wash their hands before they sat down to eat. Or actually they couldn't afford to go to the kosher butcher, so they got some meat from Fred down the road. And I'm not quite sure where it came from. The good religious people didn't need him. They knew what they were supposed to do. But the ordinary people did need him. And so the authorities get even more annoyed. They get bitter and they get resentful. And outwardly, pious people, people who seem to have all the right answers, people who seem to live a good life, inwardly become rotten and mean and resentful. And I find that quite scary because actually I'm one of the righteous people of nowadays. And so are we all. We who try to follow Jesus, we who have some sort of religious lifestyle, we are the people entrusted with the story of faith and potentially, potentially, that puts us in the category of people that Jesus isn't interested in. But there is a mystery to this. And it's the mystery that actually every single one of us is also a sinner. Every single one of us is an ordinary, fallible person with messy lives and mixed up understandings. And Jesus said, come to my table. Come and be part of something that will never entirely sit comfortably with the status quo. The truth is that every one of us is at the same time good and bad. A saint and a sinner, called by Jesus, and yet constrained by our own prejudices. I think there is always going to be that internal tension as we try to follow Jesus as faithfully as we can. We kind of want to be good, decent people. And we kind of want to get it right. And we want to engage with people on the margins, but we're always, well, if we're honest, I am anyway, a little worried about what people will think of us. And so we come back to the story about fasting or not fasting which caused some unspecified people to say, well, why are you not fasting? 
And it seems to me at the heart of this story is a genuine question that didn't come from the authorities, but it came by ordinary people who wanted to do the right thing. As they looked around, they saw other devout, committed people fasting, purposefully abstaining from food. And it felt a little uncomfortable to then look at Jesus and his friends who were feasting. What is it that we are supposed to do? What's the right choice here? That's what they're asking. And I have a sense that maybe it is in this story that some of the tension we have to live with begins to emerge. Some people will choose to fast or abstain, and others won't. Some people will make one religious choice and others another. Some of us will be drawn towards one marginalized or excluded people group and others to serve other marginalized or excluded people's groups. But whatever we sense our call to be, the challenge remains. God is not fooled by outward religious orthodoxy or by pious ritual. What God requires from us, from me, from you, from us together, is an integrated lifestyle, or at least a working towards an integrated lifestyle, in which our actions express and anticipate kingdom values for which we may fast or may pray and must certainly all work. Your disciples do not fast. One last thought. Maybe, just maybe, if we adopt the Isaiah vision of God's chosen fast, they do. Father God, we thank you for this extraordinary world and its reminders of your grace, hope and life. We see you when grass shoots break through concrete and when the sun emerges after storms. When people offer laughter in the face of our deep sadness. In these moments we see glimpses of who you are and we are thankful. Yet if we reduce you to being just like the most beautiful parts of nature or just like the best of humankind. We diminish your divine power to make the impossible real, to break apart the evils of oppression, to cast out the real fears that paralyze us, to banish the demons of judgment and of worthlessness. Forgive us, Lord, when we do not trust you to deal with the unspeakable awfulness in our world. In the silence, we name the parts of our lives and our world that we believe are too broken ever to be made whole.
Lord, forgive us when we ourselves contribute to the brokenness of the world and the lives of the people around us. In the silence we name the things that we have done that separate us from you or from others. Forgive us when we trust darkness more than light. In the silence we name the things we think we need to keep hidden. You say that those who are in Christ are a new creation, that the things of old have passed away. Lord, we pray for your world that is being made new. We thank you for all the things of this world that show us your new creation. And we hear your words to us. Your sins are forgiven. Amen. Gracious God, you bless us with abundant goodness every day. May we, who are so richly blessed, be a blessing to others as we work for justice, liberation and peace, following in the steps of Jesus and inspired by your Spirit, this day and always.